Where's Eric? I'm sorry. I'm going to move too much. Um, there's a candle here, and we light the candle when uh, somebody has uh, accepted uh, Christ as their Savior. They have turned from uh, death to life. And uh, if you were at the Young Adults Retreat last week, we had the amazing opportunity to celebrate uh, with someone who was brought uh, from uh, Salem Spanish, uh, a guy from Salem Spanish, brought this amazing guy named Ricky. And uh, I'm really happy because as I'm announcing this, I looked in the right direction, and he's uh, right here. So we want to celebrate together as Ricky uh, moved from death to life. So that's awesome. It was... Uh, it was an awesome time. Also, if you become his friend on Facebook, he has some pretty great videos of people being scared of spiders and other stuff. So, uh, great brother in Christ, also great guy to have on Facebook. Um, if you look on TV today, and you flip the channels around, uh, you'll almost certainly run into a superhero show. The Flash... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Arrow, Gotham, Agent Carter. Netflix has one called Daredevil. There's so many. A website called Den of Geek, which its name speaks for itself, I think, um, has a, a list of over 20 new comic book shows that are either beginning to air either this summer or this fall or going into production this summer or this fall. And movies are the exact same way. The most anticipated movie that is coming out next week is... There you go. Thank you. And then later on this summer, we have the tiniest movie that's going to be the biggest blockbuster in Ant-Man. Thank you. I knew I could rely on somebody. And of course, who could forget December 17th, Star Wars, the long-awaited return. Everyone's trying to get in on the action because we, as the audiences, are eating it up right now. We love it. We can't wait to see how the Flash is going to defeat the next metahuman or how uh, the Avengers are over, going to overcome this threat. Why? Because we love to see good triumph over evil. We love to see how the good guys are going to beat the bad guys. And sure, you can say the characters have gotten more intense, you know, Batman's introspective, but we love to see good beat evil. You even step out the wor outside the world of superheroes, and uh, it's the same way. How will Chicago Fire rally around uh, this one little kid saving his life? How far will Detective Voigt go to keep the streets safe? Where is the line? We want to see week after week good defeat evil. You even step into TV comedy and it's the same way. How will this family overcome these relatable, goofy, weird things going on in their life to at the end of the day be this close-knit family? We love it. But I think it's more than just good beating evil. It's more than just this desire to see Batman beat Joker. We escape there because we too long for our own lives for the good to beat the evil. We so long for, at the end of the day, for our family to be right. We escape there because we just want 
to see the good guy win. After sending you know, our kids to bed for disrespect, we want to turn on the TV and see this family that's functioning right. We escape to these worlds because it's not true of our own lives. We live broken lives. At the end of the day, if we're all honest, the good does not feel like it overcomes the evil. We go to bed, we wake up in the morning, and it's the same thing. It does not feel like the good is outweighing the bad in our lives. We can't outrun our frustrations. We can't shoot down our doubts, put the good before the bad, arrest this sin in our lives that seems to be taking control. It doesn't matter whether or not you are a believer in Christ. We all have those days. We all have those seasons in life when the bad is beating the good. And so far in our series, we have looked and addressed this idea and we've been unpacking what it means to pursue God, right? Uh, it's on your bulletins again. It says pursuit. We've been looking at this idea of holiness. And we've understood that uh, we need to be, even if you're not a believer, pursuing God, beginning to understand. And if you are a believer, growing in relationship with Him. That's what we've looked at in the past two weeks. But today we're looking at what happens when that offense, when that pursuit meets the defense. When our lives of holiness don't result in a superhero-like good defeating evil. And in this next chapter of David's life, we're going to see that uh, even though he's just defeated Goliath, that things are not perfect. In fact, he's in a pretty horrible place. So we're going to unpack what it looks like to uh, live and pursue holiness and understand why in the midst of times when bad is all we can see, why we must continue to pursue holiness. So if you would, pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, that you speak to us through your word. Father, I ask that that might be true this morning. Lord, that we would be worshiping together and listening to your word. Lord, that uh, I would merely get to be the spokesperson for what you desire to say. Lord, there is so much that is going on in our lives and I ask that we might be able to focus on you in the midst of all that this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, if you would, find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And as I mentioned before, this is our third week looking at the story of David. Uh... And we are not just trying to get to know this man. We're not just trying to understand. This is just not a study in the person of David. But we're using the story of David to understand better our pursuit of holiness. And so we watched in the first week with Pastor Ralph as uh, David was chosen and anointed by God. And if you were here and you remember in that first week, simultaneously Saul was rejected by God. And then last week we watched and Josh uh, unpacked this very famous story that's not just a bunch of vegetables, a giant pickle, right? He talked about that last week. 
uh, where David beats Goliath. The Philistines attack. And what we saw through that story is that uh, King Saul, through a lack of faith and fear, shrank back from his kingly duties. Meanwhile, David stepped up to the plate and through faith defeated Goliath, furthering uh, his place as a leader. And so we have watched as they individually head in opposite directions, right? Last week we saw so clearly how uh, Saul went away from God. Meanwhile, uh, David steps out in faith and heads towards God. And so what we see this week is that those two paths meet. So we pick up today in the end of chapter 17. We're back at that battlefield. If you can imagine it again, in the, in the distance we see Israelite uh, soldiers chasing after the retreating Philistines. Off in the distance here we see Goliath dead. It's gruesome because he's missing a head. And then walking before us is David holding the head of this dead giant. And he approaches uh, the tent of Saul and they meet. And Saul sees this lowly shepherd boy barely able to fight. And he knows that this man is more than just a shepherd. He is a leader. And so what we find is that uh, Saul puts him in charge of many of his men. He makes him a commander in the army. And in the end of chapter 17, moving into chapter 18, David turns away from Saul and is immediately met by Jonathan. They have been friends before, but after this event, you see in the first few verses that they form an inseparable bond. They become the best of friends. It's kind of like that scene post-battle. And what we know always comes next is the triumphant return. And so what we see in verse 6, if you have a Bible, you can follow along, that they come home to a, a triumphant crowd in Jerusalem. People are lining the street. There are women that are instigating the party with uh, tambourines and they're waving banners. Everyone is out to see Saul return. We see in verse 6 that though David is there, the party is really for their king. His people is finally free. For Saul, things couldn't be better. He is finally has control on his kingdom. His people are finally praising and, and shouting His name. He is so excited. As He sits atop His horse, He hears women begin to chant. He hears them saying something and He begins uh, to conduct along with them. We see in verse 7 that He hears, Saul has struck down thousands. He's so filled with pride at His loyal people. But then just as He is about to float away off of His horse, he gets slammed back down to the ground as he hears the second part of the song. David has killed his ten of thousands. This is not a loyal people anymore as he looks out over the crowd. This is a disloyal people. And they're willing to follow a new leader. And then he looks ahead and he sees David standing with Jonathan walking along. This wide-eyed boy taking in all this attention that he's receiving. This boy is not a leader. He's not a loyal servant. He is a threat. Saul's heart is gripped with jealous anger and he turns in verse 8 and he says, they have, 
ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? From this moment on, Saul's heart is gripped with a jealous anger. He will do anything to hold on to his rule. This is his throne, his people. And this boy will not get in his way. David, on the other hand, uh, barely changes. You would think that uh, with cutting off the head of a giant that uh, he would live a life of ease. But what we find in verse 10 is that he's back in his day job. Playing the harp in Saul's house. You see, he was there uh, to play any time that Saul uh, was filled with this harmful spirit of rage. But what we see is that this first day back from battle, he was failing at his job. It says in verse 10, And he, Saul, raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Now this isn't a rave, like Saul's not walking around partying. He is so upset that he is pacing back and forth. The word raves means he's almost bubbling over. And so we can picture this scene where where David's sitting there trying to calmly play the harp. Meanwhile, uh, Saul is pacing back and forth in anger. And what's more, you will see, is that he is holding a spear. Now, if I were David, and my sole job was to play the harp, and uh, the guy I was playing, for the, playing the harp for was walking around with a spear and occasionally muttering my name, that would be the Jimi Hendrix of harp playing. That would be the best that I could do. But unfortunately, it's still not good enough. Because what we see next is that Saul hurls the spear at David. His desire, it says, is to pin him to the wall. Saul's not messing around. The rage has bubbled over and it has formed into action. Saul wants to kill David. And we don't know how, but somehow Saul gets two shots off before David escapes. Saul is so filled with fury that we would expect the next verses to give us an insight into David's fear. But instead, what we see in the next verse, in verse 12, is quite the opposite. It says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Despite being filled with rage, he's thinking clearly enough to see that God is not with him, but with this boy David. So he thinks, what can I do next? You see in the passage that he promotes David into a position over a thousand men and he sends him out to this ongoing war with the Philistines. Promoting David is is only bearable because Saul knows that this inexperienced soldier will for sure be killed in battle. This will get rid of his problem. What we see instead that David goes to and from battle. And each time as he returns to Jerusalem successful in battle, that the people love him more and more. So what we see in verse 15 is that Saul instead is filled with the fearful awe of David because he has won the affection of all the people. 
thwarted again by God's provision, Saul turns to a new tactic that reveals the depths of his selfish desire to rule. He uses his daughter Merib as a reward, and he urges David to go fight the Lord's battles. He takes David's relationship with God and reduces it to a token that he can use uh, to twist the situation. He says that if David fights, that he will win and be able to take Merib as his wife. We see that Saul's selfishness is matched by David's righteousness as he rejects the king's offer. But there's more to it than it seems. Because in the next verse, what we see is that David is actually in love with uh, Saul's other daughter, Michal. Kind of reads a bit like a soap opera by now. <laughs> they come before him, asking for his approval. Saul sees this once again as a solution to his problem. He thinks to himself in verse 21, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him. And the hands of the Philistines may be against him. Hoping that love would distract David and result in death, he says, he sends his servants to go tell David that he may marry his daughter. But we see that David is ever the righteous man. And he confesses that he has no dowry to give. He has no present to give his wife to be's family. And as was the custom, he needed to either give some sort of gift or some sort of service. Unsurprisingly, Saul comes up with a solution. If you kill 100 Philistines in a certain amount of time, then you can marry my daughter. Saul's picturing it now. 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, and David will die. There's no way he can beat 100 Philistines. But what we find in the subsequent verses is that he doesn't just kill a hundred Philistines, he kills two hundred Philistines, and he does it in less than the allotted amount of time. So Saul, defeated again, gives his daughter over to David. What we find in verse 28 is that he's only able to admit what we already know. The Lord is with David. And with David being loved and embraced by all of the people, by Saul's army, by his own son Jonathan and his daughter Michal, we see that Saul takes his hatred to a new level. He gathers Jonathan and his servants together and he says, I want to kill David in chapter 19 verse 1. And basically says, if you have the opportunity, do not hesitate. Take his life. Saul has moved to an all-out murderous desire to kill David. But what we find in chapter 19 is four different scenes. Four different scenes where uh, David's life is threatened. The first comes after Saul's delusional announcement. Saul's son Jonathan takes him aside like, whoa, 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 Dad, uh, let's, let's think this through a minute. David uh, fights for you. He plays the harp like an angel for you and calms you down. He does all these things for you. There's no reason to kill him. There's not even reason for you to hate him. Moved by the words of his son, Saul says, Okay, you're right. I'll welcome him back into my house. He can continue to play the harp for me. I won't kill him. Unfortunately, as we see in the next verses, 
David comes back from war, successful again. And if you remember the first time, uh, Saul does not get too happy when David is successful in war. So as uh, David's back there playing the majestic harp, we find again that Saul is raging, raving back and forth, angrily uh, bubbling over with rage. And again, he tries to pin David to the wall. And David somehow escapes. We assume that he had quick reflexes or something because this is the third time that Saul has missed. Wise from the first time, David doesn't stick around and he escapes to his home. It says uh, in verse in verse uh, 10, he escapes that night. We see that Saul is undeterred. He sends messengers to David's house. And they're outside waiting for him to come and appear the next morning so that they can kill him. No, it is her husband, Michal, sees only one solution. He needs to escape. So she lowers him out of the window and their house would have been built into the outer wall of Jerusalem so that in being lowered out of the window, he was free to escape anywhere he wanted. With uh, David gone, she grabs a, a, a household idol and she sticks it in his bed like a child escaping and covers it with some goat's hair and hopes that it looks enough like David. In the morning, the guards are confused. Why? has David not come out? Where is he? So they knock on the door. Innocently, she answers the door. He's sick. Go tell Saul. Go tell my father. Saul obviously is not impressed. And so he again sends the messengers back and demands that they bring the supposedly sick David to him. When the messengers go to pick him up, they see that it is not David at all. And they're furious. They take Michelle with uh, them back to Saul's court. In order to protect her own skin, she lies to her own father, saying that David threatened her, that if he didn't let her go, that she, he would kill her. David, meanwhile, is safely 30 miles away with the prophet Samuel, you'll see in verse 18. He's there at Ramah where uh, Samuel is training other prophets. And he thinks here he will be safe. But Saul is so focused, so focused on holding on to this rule and, and destroying David that he sends messengers out of Jerusalem 30 miles away just to bring David back. So what we see in the next verses is this last attempt on David's life. As the messengers go, the Lord intervenes. And as they get close, they begin to prophesy alongside other prophets. So God takes them from murderers and makes them proclaimers of truth. Saul thinks it must be a fluke, so he sends a second group. And again, the same thing. When he sends the third group, I'm sure Samuel's thinking, really, dude, again? You're going to go against God again? And of course, this third group begins prophesying. But Saul is so focused on killing David, on retaining his rule, 
that He Himself goes. And what we see in the final verses of our passage is that God will not be matched. And Saul begins prophesying, but more than that, in our final verse, we are painted with this somewhat uh, crazy and disturbing image where Saul is not just prophesying, but he is laying out only with his undergarments on, on the ground in the hot sun. It says he was there day and night. All this pursuit has come to this. Throughout the entire passage, Saul's sole purpose has been to retain his throne. Everything he has done is an attempt to tighten his grip. His attempt on David's life in his own home, just sending him to war, marrying off his daughter, using his daughter's dowry, his second attempt in his home, uh, in David's home, and again in Ramah. If you count up all the spears and all the various messengers, it's ten different threats on David's life. And what's more, we see from Saul casually trying to send him off to war to blatantly chasing after him to kill him. But why so much focus on the events of Saul? Well, they give to, they serve to give a clear distinction. While Saul focuses on his own rule, David's sole pursuit is the Lord. Three times in chapter 18 we see that it says, The Lord was with David. And each time it's an uh, explanation for what is going on in the story. In verse 12, Saul is afraid of David because the Lord is with him. In verse 14, uh, it comes after uh, David's return from battle. And in verse 28, uh, after everyone is uh, in love with David, including Saul's own daughter, we see that uh, Saul fears him because the Lord was with him. However, while this passage lays out that David is pursuing holiness and Saul is pursuing his own purpose, the theme in our passage and the understanding of our passage is greater than that. David's actions and his consequences uh, help us as readers understand why we must pursue holiness even in the face of such opposition. Because we see that David, if it was us, should be fearing for his own life. He should be hiding and running away from Saul. David's almost a minor character. If you read through this straight, you almost forget he's there other than just being a, a human dartboard. But as much as he tries, we see that the Lord is with David. And Saul is thwarted over and over. And what we see as a result in chapter 18 is that uh, as David pursues the Lord, that he is largely blessed. And then what we see in chapter 19 is that as he pursues the Lord, that he is protected. In every attempt on David's life in chapter 18, it results in a greater blessing for David. David becomes uh, the commander of a thousand troops. He wins the affections of the people. He wins uh, the heart of David's daughter. Everyone turns towards him. And then in chapter 19, we see as uh, David is so clearly protected, first through Jonathan, then through Saul's again miss of the spear, 
and then through uh, David's wife, and then finally through the clear and direct intervention of God. Yeah, in this chapter, you could say, how do we really know that David is pursuing the Lord? How do we know that is his focus? Well, there's one detail left out of chapter 19. And that's why hold up in Jerusalem that David penned Psalm 59. If you have a Bible, you can turn there to Psalm 59. At the beginning of it, right before verse 1, it says, A miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. While he's supposed to be escaping, while his wife is preparing for his uh, um, escape out of the window, David is crying out to the Lord. We see in the first verse that he says, Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. And then he closes in verses 16 and 17 saying this, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. He says that the Lord has been his fortress even after his life has been threatened over and over. David relies completely on the Lord. His sole pursuit is the Lord even in the midst of such adversity. And when we look at this passage and we see uh, David's example, it is clear that God, what God would have us do as well. David pursued the Lord in the midst of all of this. So too are we to pursue the Lord. So too are we to live lives of holiness. Even if we're turning on the TV at the end of the day, feeling like the bad is defeating the good. Even if you don't feel like the superhero that you wish you were. David himself admits that it's not easy. In Psalm 59, he asks for deliverance from the Lord. He gets that he's in a tough spot, but he does not take his eyes off of the Lord for a second. And that's what we need to get. In these tough times, we cannot lose sight of the Lord. We need to constantly pursue Him and only Him. For those of us who are believers, we really shouldn't be surprised that we're going through these hard times. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter lays out the fact that if we're believers, if we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that we are going to be threatened. There's going to be situations and people like Saul to David that try to knock us off of our feet. But like David, we need to be sure we are in those moments even more confidently and consistently pursuing God. And thankfully, when we do pursue Him, we see the same result as David. When we pursue holiness, when we are living with God as our sole focus, that is when God blesses and protects us. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not preaching heresy. I'm not saying that if we pursue God, that if our eyes are fixed on Him, that we're just going to garner our blessings, we'll go home and have a new car, we'll have a great house, we'll have tons of money in our bank account. That's not what I'm saying. 
that would be completely wrong. But what we see in the example of David is that when we are pursuing God's will for our lives, when we are living in holiness, that is the only place where we will find blessing. You could argue, and I'm sure some of us in our minds right now are thinking, I know plenty of people who are pursuing anything but the Lord, and they seem pretty blessed to me. If you step back and you look at those people, you realize that those are earthly blessings. And if you see them and you see their lives and you think that's a blessing, then clearly you're focusing on the wrong thing. we're pursuing God, if we're striving for holiness, we will understand more what it means to be blessed in God's eyes and not in our own. I was met with this reality uh, last week at the Young Adults Retreat. We spent one of our sessions looking at John chapter 15 where it talks about the vine and the branches and we talked about the idea of abiding in Christ and without Him we can do nothing. And then in verse uh, 7, right after that, it says this, If you abide in me, Jesus says to us, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Jesus says this. If we are in him, if he is our focus, if everything else of this world does not matter, and we're abiding in him, then, and only then, can we ask whatever we wish, and it will be given to us. Why? Because if we are abiding in Him, if He is our sole focus, then uh, what we consider as blessings for our lives will already be what God considers as blessings for our lives. If if God is our uh, only pursuit, then what we think is good for our lives will be what God knows is good for our lives. The only blessings we will desire... The only pursuits, our only ambitions will be ones that God has given to us. David was pursuing God. And as a result, we see that he received all that God wanted him to receive. If we pursue God, he will have for us all that he desires for us. And we see the same thing when we are living in holiness, that we are also protected in the same way. God had a clear plan for David, and as David lived in that plan, pursued him, as we see in Psalm 59, cries out to him, David is completely protected. And if we're completely living in God's will, we are completely protected from all that he would not have for us. Romans 8.28, a popular but often misused verse, says, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. When we're pursuing Him, it will eventually turn out for our ultimate good. Because our ultimate good and that what we want is what He wants. That's not to say that everything will be good. We all know that's not true. But it will work out. When we pursue holiness, uh, we... We need to make sure that it is our entire focus because it's only there, only when we are completely desiring God, that we will be blessed and we will be protected. And I'll be honest, this sounds great. Even writing it, it's easy to get carried away uh, with these thoughts of God's blessing and promise. If I just pursue Him, I read my Bible enough, it's going to be great. 
But we all know that right now, even in this room, that is not the case at all. There's so many of us that are facing uh, things that are horrible. You have health concerns that are not going away. You may even leave this room and you're saying, I get this blessing and, and protection thing, but when I go home, that fight with my wife, that fight with my husband is not resolved. How do you say this is going on? When we are pursuing Him, we, we can't expect for it just to be a walk in the park. But how do we see through it all? How do we find our focus? We must pursue God. But there's an encouraging thing in this. Even though you say, I don't know if I can do this, I don't know if I can keep my eyes on Him, you don't understand what's weighing in on top of me. Look back at Romans 8.28. God works everything together. It's not our job to sort it out. It's not our job to try to solve these problems. God works all things for good. The only job that He has given us is to pursue Him. And if we even try to do the job, if we try to take God's place and say, okay, God, thanks for giving me a little nudge in the back. I think I got it from here. Thanks for jump-starting my car. Now I can drive. That's when we start down the path that Saul took. That's when we start heading the other direction and saying, this is my life, my rule, my throne. It is not our job to figure it all out. It is our job to pursue God in all that we do. We cannot lose focus on the only one who is able to bring us through it all. David's life was threatened ten times. Yet what we see in the beginning of this passage is that in each he was blessed all the more. And then what we see in, verse cha- in chapter 19 is that he was protected. We aren't called to try to save our own lives. We are called in the midst of of the toughest times in the midst of seasons that seem horrible, we are called to pursue God. We know that as we pursue Him and live in His will for our life, that there He will bless us in a way more than we could ever imagine. In a way that only He knows. And that He will protect us all along the way. I don't think they're in our bulletins this week, but we were given at the beginning of these series cards that say, what will be your pursuit? See, when we pursue, we need to go after it. We can't expect to get through these times. We can't expect to live in what God has for us by just sitting here. What will you do? Are you saying your focus? Uh, are you getting into God's Word? Pursuing uh, takes the time, takes the effort. Last week we learned it takes, uh, at the Young Adults Retreat, it takes 10, uh, 12 minutes, 12 minutes a day to accomplish reading the Bible in a year. Do you have 12 minutes a day to focus your heart? Do you shower every day? Do not raise your hands for that. If you shower, mine are like 10 minutes. 
That is like eight minutes when you're not body soaping up, when you're just sitting there, that you can cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need to pursue you. How many of us commute on a daily basis? I just talked with a friend this weekend, and he says he has 40 minutes in the car each way. Can you imagine if you spent 20 minutes talking with your Lord, the giver of life? And lastly, we do not walk in this alone. We're going to look at David and Jonathan next week. But so many of us think that as we pursue that we do this on our own. You need someone alongside of you. Are you pursuing thinking, I've got this? Who is keeping you accountable for that sin that you know is in the back of your head day in and day out? That sin that threatens to get out. We need people alongside of us as we pursue the Lord. I would challenge you, figure out what will be your pursuit. How will you not lose sight of God? Because we need to be focused on Him if we hope to get through these times of hardship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we so frequently, we so often take our eyes off of You. We think that this is our own rule. We think this is our own life. And yet, Lord, it is so clear that You have called us to pursue You and that You have so much for us in return. Father, I ask that that your will for our lives would be our only pursuit, that we would grow closer to you and that we would see as you keep us through all of these uh, times in our life. Father, help us to walk together in holiness. In your name I pray. Amen.